0: I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and thank you for being with us again this week on Conversations. We'll be talking to Dr. Donna Harrison. She's the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, a really important organization that went to court against uh, Joe Biden's HHS recently to stop a guidance that would make emergency room doctors in every state have to perform abortions, if you can believe that. But first, we are really honored to have Professor Anthony Esselen of Magdalene College with us to discuss Dante and also to talk about his great new substack called Word and Song. It's a really um, great website where there's a combination of poetry and movies and and beautiful music and everything predicated on this need to connect, reconnect with beauty and with all the things that elevate the soul. Welcome to the show, Professor Esselin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor to have you. I've been reading you for a very long time and I'm always very moved and touched by by the way that you weave in um, so many beautiful elements of our faith, but also beauty and poetry and, and all the things that elevate our soul towards God in ways that maybe we don't think about very often in this very pedestrian, very material world.
1: Uh, yeah, we're, if, if only we were pedestrian. I mean, we'd, I think we'd have to improve quite a lot to get back up to the level of pedestrian.
0: There you go. That's because, true. Because <laughs> right,
1: right now we've got the, the world out there is, is garish and and hideous. Mm -hmm. I mean the world that our poor kids uh, grow up in so far from pedestrian which is at least gray and ordinary Mm -hmm. it's a really sick and depraved place for the poor kids.
0: It's dystopic right? There's something about uh it's something if you'd made a movie about it 80 years ago, you would have been, you would have said, oh, that'll never happen, the way that young people are growing up in, in a virtual world, uh, removed from everything mm-hmm. that's, that's natural and, and, and enters through all the senses, right? It's all very, um, yeah. very cold. No,
1: even, even 60 years ago, uh, people would have been appalled by the, by the loneliness,
0: mm-hmm. loneliness.
1: Of, of the current world, right? The fact that the men and women have almost nothing good to say to one another about the sexes. Um, so few people are getting married. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a world in which the basic things of, of, of human life aren't even getting done.
0: We had uh, Carl um, Truman on last week, um, and I, and yeah. we, we spoke about, we touched on these issues too from a different perspective. He, we were talking about his book, Strange New World and Modern Conceptions of the Self. But I, I feel that there's a right. lot of, there's a lot to be woven into this, uh, to that about the modern conceptions of the self and what the self really needs to flourish.
1: Yeah, well, if you were living in a, in a healthy society, you uh, find yourself already born in a web of human relationships, yes. mm-hmm. right? And uh, you are born into a culture with its poetry, its song, its traditional celebrations, and its worship, mm-hmm. right? Because there is no culture without the divine. There's no culture without divine worship. And these give you meaning. These, these give you a self that transcends your own age, Mm-hmm. Right, uh, But with all of that gone, and Professor Truman is quite right about this, the people are engaged in desperate enterprise to fill up the gap. And they fill it up with fevered imaginations of their selves, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't work because it's not grounded in anything real. It doesn't extend beyond the person. It doesn't uh, reach back into the ages past. It doesn't reach forward into the future. There's no culture to it. Ultimately, it's just a a matter of self-will. And the will can change on a dime. I mean, there's no real society in it. Uh, No society is really possible when that's how people define themselves. I'm myself. I've created myself. It's a it's 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 a lonely thing. It's it's sick and lonely, and the response to the loneliness makes matters worse. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Now that I'm in my I'm in my my second half of my life, I've I've passed nel mezzo del cammino di de nostra vita, as you say, and, and Dante yeah. as he starts, and we'll talk about Dante. Um, I find that what shocks me is that we've chosen loneliness uh, as as a culture, as a as a species, <laughs> now and in yeah. our modern times. But loneliness only really starts to be apparent later on in life when, when all those relationships we didn't build in the first half of our life uh, suddenly become tremendously necessary and the loneliness becomes unbearable.
1: Well, I, I think, yeah, it, the kids in school are even feeling it. Um, yeah, well, you know what? I, I sometimes mention to my students that I don't know of a, of a word in Middle English that carries the meaning lonely. Mm-hmm i don't think there was such a word because the phenomenon didn't exist how could Mm -hmm. you be lonely Mm
2: -hmm.
1: i mean you could be hated by a bunch of people uh people can think that you're a louse you're not going to be lonely Mm
2: -hmm.
1: because you are constantly among other people you're usually outdoors and you're doing things Mm -hmm. you may be doing good things you may be doing bad things but you're doing things
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right and that's that's no longer the case i uh i i've said and I got taken to task for this. Oh, this is just silly. This is not true. And heck, heck, it is true. How many of our uh, young people reach the age of 20, 30, and they can recall not a single day in which they were doing something with a member of the opposite sex that they really liked or loved, something that was thoroughly innocent, wasn't necessarily oriented towards marriage, right? But just... He says, a boy and a girl, you go and do something together and you, and you have fun. There's nothing to regret because you're not doing anything wrong. It's, it's just all this. So you, you, you spend the day at a, at a, at a, at a miniature golf place and mm-hmm. then you go get something to eat. And how many millions of our young people have never had a day like that?
0: Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine the things that our young people aren't doing, right? The things that, uh, yeah. that were structured by God or by evolution or both um, to, to need, to need deeply. Those, those, that intricate yeah. web of relationships, the the yeah. constant, um, the constant contact with our brother man, and it's just missing from our lives. But uh, Professor Esselin, I always, you know, I do this very often when I when I start an interview with someone who's very interesting. <laughs> And uh, well,
2: Thank you. Huh? We
0: start talking about top, a topic, uh, and and it's wonderful. And I want to talk to you so much about so many things. But I have to mention <laughs> the reason that you're on the show, which is a couple of reasons. I wanted to okay. ask you, you have a, a couple, uh, you have two projects. Uh, you have many, many irons on the fire, many beautiful things right. that you do and many projects that you're involved in. But there were two that I wanted to talk to you about. And it actually goes back to what we're talking about, because I think it's your way of battling um, this, uh, this loneliness of the modern self and connecting Connecting, connecting people back again to the things that we're missing. One of them right. is uh, your substack uh, that I just I just took a deep dive into it, and I, I enjoyed it so much. And oh, it's called the World... Word no, no, no. and Song. Word and Song, yes. I'm,
3: I'm... Word
1: and Song. That's it's right. absolutely wonderful. It by, by typing in Word and Song, or you go to anthonyeslin.com, and it'll show up. Yeah, I and mean, again, I'm, what I'm trying to do here is... Uh, it's a sweet task it's it's introducing people who are going to be grateful for it because they you know they i didn't know this wow this is something but introducing people to poetry which should be in their heritage Mm -hmm. it's the it's the common heritage of mankind until now right
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um so we have a poem of the week that i discuss a little bit and uh, I read, I recite for, for um, paid subscribers. Uh, we, we have uh, a hymn of the week, so I, I get a traditional hymn and you know, discuss what the poet is doing, what's going on in it, what makes it a great hymn. Um, We have a film recommendation of the week, and I go to to classic films, and again, a little bit of discussion. This is what you're going to see. This is why this is a great movie. Uh, a, A word of the week that's a foray into the English language and its funny history and whatnot. Um, sometimes a song which is what my wife does so it's by way of reintroducing people or introducing them to popular music of a very high quality from from of old not really that old some of it within our own lifetimes but it's really remarkable the kinds of things that ordinary people used to listen to or sing and people with a decent amount of talent composed and played almost all that is gone now so so she's reintroducing people to great songs from our past, great some of the great American songs too. And uh, we have we have uh, podcasts every week. Sometimes it's a longer poem that I talk about and recite. Sometimes a chapter from one of my books, and, and or sometimes a lecture that I've given. And it's I think it's I think it's really various, right? It's it's not like anything else. That will be out there. It's not just another Substack thing, right? Um,
0: and what what is your overarching uh, and desire here? What do you what what need is, are you trying to fill?
1: I I understand that because of our, our rotten schools, we have almost no poetry. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the poetry is totally foreign to us, and that makes us weird. That makes us like unique in the history of mankind. I also know that uh, music has been in the tank. So so many people have never heard uh, great great songs that were once played for millions of Americans to sing or to listen to or to dance to. I know from uh, unfortunate experience uh, that uh, uh, most churchgoers, both Catholic and Protestant, do not know. Um, The great hymns of our tradition, and these hymns go back 1,700 years. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm in the position of knowing about some of these things and saying, hey, come on here and look. I got something to show you here. Look at this. Isn't this great? The idea, I guess, is to reclaim the good and the beautiful and the true. In a, in a winsome way, in a way that uh, I hope uh, uh, people will find a great deal of fun. My husband
0: um, has a reading group, and one and they meet once a month, and they read articles, and, and they do all sorts of interesting reading. Not really books, because men have short attention spans normally. And as as my husband says, and it's
1: not true by nature. <laughs> well, these men, not true by nature. These
0: modern men, these modern professional men that he has, and he um, a few months ago he did a poetry. Bring your favorite poem, and it was spectacular. I wish that I could have been. I'm not allowed to go because I'm a woman. But he said that men brought fabulous poems and, and read them out, declaimed them. These were men that he never thought would would have that kind of. Uh, well, that's
1: interesting. Isn't they, that they interesting? They would really like. They would ri- really enjoy. The, well, I think everybody would enjoy it, but they really enjoy this this word and song, you know. And I can imagine a bunch. If we have a theme every week, right? This week, this week's theme is labor work because of Labor Day and, and so on. Um, and, and another a theme to be coming will be autumn, you know. But I can imagine a bunch of guys getting together uh if for instance the theme of the week would be fighting mm-hmm. military lots right? of great military British, poetry soldiers oh yeah and uh then uh it, you know i can imagine them saying hey well let's let's try to sing the song that he recommends here mm-hmm. the hymn and uh say, joe why don't you read the poem that he he's recommending or let's listen to him
0: why why uh, do you the read poem. the why do you read the poems out loud instead of just having us read them on your on your self-stack
1: Well, well, uh, the the Beating Out Loud is for, I have to admit it's for paid subscribers, but um, I think that you don't really begin to uh, grasp a poem until you hear it. Mm -hmm. And that also includes hearing it, not just from somebody else, but you hear yourself perform it, right? You hear yourself recite it. And that was the way ordinary people Mm -hmm. experienced poetry up until about 1900. Poetry was closely alive. Everybody understood that poetry was close cousin to music. People would get together to hear poems, right? And uh, some of that tradition lasted into the 20th century, but now it's almost entirely gone because poets have ceased to write things that are meant to be heard they gave over meter and rhyme for instance and um, the results have been spotty at best disastrous at worst and they've alienated they've alienated most of their audience most people like music mm-hmm. All those people who would be attracted to poetry because of its musical qualities have been alienated,
0: and, uh, and, and, and there goes
1: most of your audience.
0: And and the and the modern poet that has abandoned the musicality of poetry and its appeal to the masses. Why did he do that? Why did the poet do that? Is it is it like the the modern artist, the the artist, the the paint artist, no, the painter, who has abandoned. The idea of pleasing um, yeah. and elevating the soul of the person who sees the art—is that that same kind of a, a it's, modern it's part abandonment? Of is,
1: part of it is that, right? So we we had—I'll uh, just take uh, T.S. Eliot for an example, right? What well, we had uh, between the wars, right after war, the disaster of World War One, we had poets trying to come to grips with the collapse of an entire civilization. Mm-hmm. Civilization was in ruins. Uh, Nothing has changed, by the way, in that regard. Uh, So what they felt they needed was a poetry that reflected the ruins. And what you got was poetry that used some of the old traditions and some of the old meters, but that deliberately cut them short or put them at odds with what wasn't musical at all um, in order to get at the essence of a world that had fallen to ruin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, unfortunately, it's really easy to begin to write poetry without meter. It's almost impossible to do it really well, but it's really easy to pretend to do it, to attempt to mm-hmm. do it.
0: It's and easy to dabble. You can Anyone can dabble in that kind of poetry.
1: Yeah, I mean, just like anybody can dabble throwing paint on a canvas, mm-hmm. but you can't dabble. At painting the human figure, you have to actually know what you're doing. You have to have technique
0: and and skill. That's right. And
1: you, with meter and rhyme, you there's there's not a whole lot by way of dabbling that you can do because you're going to be shown up to be incompetent at it pretty quick, just like somebody trying to draw the human figure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if all you're doing is doing something uh, grotesque or obscene, I mean, anybody could do that. Perhaps not well, but anybody can do it. And uh, so we then had, we've had a hundred years of um, the abandonment of the old forms. And... Some people have tried to resist it, but uh, the damage has been done. Uh, there's no audience anymore. It w- um, was, it,
0: was it partly a drive for egalitarianism? Because certain people weren't, did, never, weren't able to be educated enough or had enough access uh, to, no, to know, these higher I, forms of culture. So let's just dumb everything down and, and flatten you know, the I landscape. Actually,
1: I don't think so. In this case, I don't think so. See, the ordinary people, mm-hmm. okay, they still liked... And they still do, right? They just don't have good stuff. I mean, they'll go for Hallmark card verse, you know, every time. Um, The ordinary people liked meter Mm -hmm. and rhyme. They liked music. Uh, They liked melody, right? This was a way of sticking it to them and showing how superior we are. To them
0: the okay. elites to the ordinary the elites,
3: people right the elites to the
0: oh ordinary people. okay the if you were elites. smart like us you wouldn't be dependent on these on these easy to That's appreciate right. uh um, old-fashioned things to
1: understand that my throwing a bunch of paint on a canvas mm-hmm. or my painting colored rectangles
0: or just a blank you canvas
1: smart enough
0: <laughs> just white appreciate. canvas oh are okay.
1: smart we know better you're a dope mm-hmm. okay and it was seconded by the academic establishment. That's just deadly.
0: Well, it's um, like architecture, right? Architecture has taken the same form. Everything that was pleasing right. to live in has been replaced by um, things that appeal to a tiny sliver of the architectural academia, academic oh, yeah. establishment. They,
1: they pretend to love them. They pretend to love them too, right? And they win big price. right? All of the arts have gone in the, the direction of the snob who, you know, rewards what is unnatural or perverse or ugly or incoherent or without any structure. And uh, basically that loses, that loses your, your your whole popular audience.
0: Okay. But, Um, but traditionally the, the, the real artist, the old fashioned artist, what was his aim? What was he trying to do? Was he trying to elevate souls, bring them to God, raise them from the mire?
1: Some of them were trying to bring them to God. Some of them were were trying to they they had an idea in mind or a feeling in mind and they wanted to embody that somehow and they they understood that in order to do that well they had to be masters of the craft
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right Uh, a caravaggio tormented man that he was great sinner perhaps a great repenter too It's like Caravaggio's soul gets taken up with some idea that he's got to express. What is, what it be like to be Mary Magdalene at the moment of your repentance before you've gone to Jesus? Hmm. How can I paint that woman? Okay. I know how other people have painted her. I got something different in mind. You see Caravaggio's Mary Magdalene. She's cut her hair a bit short. She's dressed as a high class prostitute. The tools of her trade are littered on the floor. String of pearls, so on. And an alabaster jar of ointment is mm-hmm. there and she has her hands folded like this in a single tear one tear one tear down her cheeks
0: to express okay. every every moment of remorse
1: that's it that's it right carajo he could do that he could do that. um because he had he had this intense experience of uh sin and, and repentance
0: and he and he had but, a desire to 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 nail down this moment that's universal in, in every human right yeah. that's crosses centuries right. and crosses right. and, cultures
1: and to do it better than anybody else had done it before because i think it was supremely ambitious very complicated guy right uh but you know now who would who even condescends to learn the craft You have poets who have never really studied the craft of poetry, and the same thing with same thing can be said for the other arts. When Dante wrote, he wrote having in mind all the great writers of the past, both in Latin and Italian, and old Provençal and current day French, right? And he wanted to master that art. He wanted to be, I think, the greatest poet who ever lived, and he knew he had to study humbly in order to uh, even take the first step along that way.
0: Thank you for bringing Wait. us to Dante.
2: <laughs> okay,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we had to get to Dante.
2: We had to get back. Tell to
0: us Dante. about your beautiful Dante project. I'm a subscriber, by the way, uh, to your Dante uh, well, project, I, I, I've, and I've, tell I've, us about I've, it, please.
1: I've translated the Divine Comedy. Yes, this was quite a while ago now. Yeah, um, uh, the the three uh, the three main Right, the three sections, the Inferno, the Purgatory, and the Paradise, mm-hmm. That's, that all can be had. It's published by Penguin Random House. We've got Italian on one side and English on the other. Notes in the back that I wrote to be helpful for my students, an introduction in each case, page glosses for names that you want to identify or, or you know, funny words. Uh, so that you don't have to go looking up in the back and illustrations by Gustave Doré and appendices to give you some of Dante's contemporaries or his sources like Thomas Aquinas and so on. So everything that you could need to help you out is there. Um, and it's in poetic form. And I believe that the poetry is entirely readable.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. I give you an example. Okay. This is at the beginning of purgatory, right? Uh, I dare anybody to say, oh, no, no, that's too, that's too hard for me. That's too hard for me. Just the first couple of lines. My little ship of ingenuity now hoists her sails to speed through better waters, leaving behind so pitiless a sea. And I will sing about that second realm, given the human soul to purge its sin and grow worthy to climb to paradise. <laughs> that you know, okay. And, uh, shortly after right he's looking up at the sky he notices various constellations it's just before sunrise the Sky is this deep blue um before the sun has risen it's absolutely beautiful and he he suddenly looks around him uh and says i saw beside me an old man alone so reverend in his bearing and his look no father claims more honor from his son his beard was long and mingled with white strands similar to the color of his hair it lay upon his breast in double bands the rays of the four holy stars on high adorned his face with such a brilliant gleam it seemed the sun shone full upon his eye and then this man asks dante and virgil what are you doing here <laughs> um, who are you who have come up the blind stream to flee the prison of eternity said he shaking those venerable plumes who was your guide what lamp has led your feet, escaping from the sea of that deep night, forever blackening the infernal pit? Because he knows they've come up from hell. Mm-hmm. What are you doing here? Right? Anybody can understand that.
0: Absolutely. But why should we? Right? Why should we all understand Dante? We? Give us give us your Dante pitch.
1: Well, he's the greatest poet who ever lived.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If, If we consider Shakespeare a playwright, not a poet, okay just put him in the category of playwright so we can leave the category of poet free dante is the greatest poet who ever lived and the greatest poem ever written is the divine comedy there is pretty much nothing in human life or human nature that is not addressed in the divine comedy if you ask what it is about it's about everything but everything we experience and everything we can imagine what does it mean to be a sinner what does it mean to fall in love what is love anyway <laughs> um Can you love things that are bad? What does it mean to turn to God? Who is God? What does it mean to be a real society? How does law function in a just society? What's the difference between justice and mercy? What does sin do to you inside, quite apart from any punishment that you may suffer hereafter? What are the various sins? What are the various virtues that combat them? What's the difference between a life of active virtue and a life of contemplation? who was christ what does it mean to be a human person (laughs) what does it mean to have a face
0: and does dante Uh, does dante satisfy with his answers yes yes
1: but not because he's Dante. well i mean he's a genius right he's a genius who's read everything he could get his hands on and it has soaked into him but he's he's doing what augustine said that he himself was doing with regard to the neoplatonist philosophers who came before him who were not even christian were standing on the shoulders of giants well, dante's standing on the shoulders of giants
0: mm-hmm.
1: right he himself is a giant but see the, the thing is if you, if you abandon the tradition it's you, you know it's, t- it's like technologically you say well you know we're, we're going to forget everything that we know and we're going to reinvent wheels mm-hmm. all the time well, don't be surprised then if you go bumping along and your wheel gets stuck after a 100 feet uh, because it's not perfectly round and you didn't really know what an axle was supposed to do and all this other stuff. Well, Dante's standing on the shoulders of uh, poetic and intellectual and um, uh, artistic giants uh, it, it, because of that what we have in him is not just something whipped up by a single person somewhere. We've we've got the distilled wisdom of millennia here, right? Everything that is known to man in Dante's time finds its place in the Divine Comedy. There's nothing comparable to this work nowadays.
0: Professor Esselin, I'm very sorry to say we're out of time, but I'm sure that all our listeners are running to their bookcase to find their, their copy of Dante. They should probably better go to Amazon and get your translation. That's right. And uh, they can okay. just look it up, right? Dante, The Divine right. Comedy, Anthony Esselin. And also they should um, subscribe to your Substack. How do they find your Substack?
1: stack uh, Go to anthonyesselin.com. And it'll show up. And there is a link there to my books, too, so that they can can find uh, the translations there also.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time with us, Professor.
1: Well, thank you. Thank Thank you for having me.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and a favorite friend of mine, Dr. Donna Harrison, Executive Director of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, is back on with us. Welcome to the show,
2: Donna. Thank you so much, Gracie.
0: You know, I love having you on because you have you have such a wonderful, a universal understanding of all the ways that uh, medicine uh, and patients, which is everybody, right, is being threatened by all these terrible pro-death ideologies that are just somehow taking over the world, taking over the way we we interact with the world, even in, in this most intimate part of our lives, which is medical care.
2: No, you're right. And it's, it's amazing the extent of misinformation that's out there. And some of it is propagated by people that are responsible for giving us good information. So well, I, I would go that. so
0: far as to say most, most of it is propagated by, you know, there's, a, there's, we, you hear a lot about misinformation in the media, but I find um, that the real sources of dangerous misinformation are coming from people who who do know better and who are using statistics and numbers that are gotten in very bad ways and you know ways that aren't accurate to gin up opposition to the, to the things that they dislike you know things like you know they they dislike Proper treatment of, of unborn children as patients, mm-hmm. which is just which is just normal classical Western Hippocratic medicine. To think yeah, of, of a pregnant right. woman as a woman carrying a, a second patient, just as valuable as the first.
2: Yeah, that's right. And we've always, as physicians, said we our job is to heal and not to kill. Mm-hmm. And and we've we've always had that stance. I mean, that was part of the the understanding of what medical care has been for, you know, 2,500 years. It's been a long time.
0: Well, and I'm sorry to report, and um, we've reported often on this show, that under the Biden administration, there's been a concerted push from the administration to really put um, a lot of these things that uh, that go against the culture of life and medicine, to put it on steroids and to write it into every regulation from coming out of the federal government, which does affect us no matter in what state of the union you live, you're going to be affected because the hospital that you go to accepts Medicaid dollars or, um, and, and you can't get away from it. So there's several, several of these issues that, that keep coming up and the way they affect medicine. But one we wanted to talk to you about is uh, some time ago, the Biden administration released, a finding, released a, an executive uh, order on something called MTALA. It's a little complicated, but I thought that you'd be the perfect person to explain it to us.
2: Yeah, we, we read that uh, guidance from the uh, administration and basically what what the administration did was they took a law called EMTALA, which is the emergency medical treatment uh, act uh, which requires a hospital or emergency facility to treat and stabilize regardless of the patient's ability to pay mm-hmm. okay that was that was an act enacted years and years ago and it has never been applied to elective abortion until now so as part of the Biden administration pulling out all the stops um, by their own admission, what they've said, what what they said was that they were going to use Mtala to try to force other people who would ordinarily object to elective abortion into being complicit with the procedure. So this is extremely concerning because MTA is a good act that basically says. If a patient can't pay, you must stabilize them. You must take care of a, a pregnant mom, for example. But what Amtelia also says is you have to also stabilize and take care of her preborn child. Mm-hmm. So Amtelia explicitly requires the stabilization and care for the preborn child. So what the Obama or what the uh, current administration did was to use the term "health," which is a very slippery term—a term that can mean anything—and to say that you. Have to treat conditions which threaten the mom's health, and we're not talking irreparable damage to a major bodily organ. We're, we all get that. We're talking things like, "I don't want to be pregnant," and so it's a danger to my well-being or health to continue this pregnancy. Well, well, what does that mean? That's not a physical threat. So. The Biden administration uses this definition of health that was proposed years and years and years ago, actually at the same time that Roe v. Wade was passed. So Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion, struck down the laws in all 50 states, said that you can't make any law that threatens a woman's health. All the laws have to have a health exception. Well, on the same day that the Supreme Court issued Roe v. Wade, they also issued a companion decision called Doe versus Bolton, which defined health. And Doe versus Bolton defined health as any physical, psychological, social, familial, or any other reason. So basically, health is the word that swallows the rule. It's the it's the health definition in Doe that allowed for abortion on demand through through delivery. And so using that same health terminology, the current administration issued these new Mtella guidance saying that you must stabilize and treat anything that not only threatens a woman's life but also threatens her health undefined Donna, when, when, when i read that yeah.
0: guidance i was trying to come when i've been trying to understand what scenarios they might have been envisioning so i know amtala from my training the reason amtala was passed is because like you said a very good law is because um, for instance where i trained i trained at a very big public hospital in downtown yeah. miami and everybody who didn't have private insurance had to be treated at our hospital because none of the right. other hospitals had the support from the county taxes and the and the, the, right. the city taxes to to take care of these patients who all our patients were basically uninsured and, and had no means to pay. OK, yeah. so they belonged in our hospital because in the private hospitals and all the other hospitals, there was no support from the state and the country uh, the the city and the county to to take care of these people. But. Yeah. When a woman would arrive at a at a private hospital in labor because she was down the street when she when she went into precipitous labor, for instance, the hospital would try to transfer her in the middle of her labor to another hospital to to our public hospital, and that was wrong for the woman and the baby because they should have taken good care of the, the mom and the baby. And when they were both stable, then they could be taken to our hospital, and right. then their care continues. So, Mtala was a wonderful law; is a wonderful law, and and it helps people receive the care, the emergency care that they need. So then yeah. this guidance comes out, and I'm trying to picture where, in which part of MTALA, possibly could, what scenario exists where a woman shows up in the middle of an abortion and somebody has to continue her abortion or finish it? I can't even imagine a scenario where in an emergency yeah. department, you would be performing an elective abortion. Maybe you th- can think of one and can
2: tell me. Yes. Yeah, so it's really cleverly tucked into the wording. And basically what what the new guidance said was that whether or not something is an emergency is, is the judgment of the physician. And if the physician decides that something is an emergency, then that physician can say, okay, this is a threat to the mom's health and I'm going to treat it. Okay. And if in that physician's judgment, an elective abortion is what's needed to treat this, then that preempts state law. So what they were doing was a, they were doing an end run mm. around the people who mm-hmm. have said, we don't want abortion in our state, but the guidance would allow an abortionist to tell a woman to go to the ER. And if that abortionist was on staff, but, that the abortionist would meet her in the ER and she would say, I'm in mental distress because of this baby. And he would say, that sounds like a, a risk to your health. We're going to go ahead and abort. And it would force, it would allow the abortionist to uh, completely skirt state law, and it would also force the hospital, health-based, faith-based healthcare systems to be complicit in that. Because to to say, oh, you can't do an elective abortion in our hospital system, would be kind of tantamount to saying uh, to an antella violation, basically. Mm-hmm. And and that's significant fines for the healthcare system and for the physicians. So. So that's the one side of it. The abortionist who just tells his patient or her patient to come in and I'll treat your emergency care, in my judgment, um, and force the hospital to be complicit with it. The other side is if a woman starts a Mifeprex abortion at home and starts bleeding, mm-hmm. comes into the hospital, but she still has a baby with a heartbeat. Okay? She's not hemorrhaging. She's got a little bit of bleeding and spotting. The baby's got a heartbeat. They could, you know, I mean, really. What Imtala would require you to do in that case is give progesterone and finish finish the yeah, abortion. No, 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 no. To give progesterone, not mifepristone. Oh, I'm sorry. The, the, the original Imtala, original Imtala. Yeah, the original Imtala to mm-hmm. give progesterone to support to support her to pregnancy. Support, right to stabilize mm-hmm. the, the the preborn child. That's what the original Imtala would say. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this Imtala could be read to say, "Oh, well." She's coming in, she's got bleeding, it's therefore an emergency, and you must complete that abortion. And see, that's, that's where you have the federal government stepping in and forcing something that was never meant by the MTALA legislation. And that's why we sued the federal government. We said this, is, this was never the intent of this was this isn't the reading of the statute by any way, shape, or means, and... Furthermore, the federal government does not have the authority to preempt state law. States control the practice of medicine. And so our point was you, you don't have the this, this statutory authority under Mtala to preempt state law. And, and so uh, we were very delighted that um, the, the uh, judge in the case agreed with us. And so currently the um, guidance that was issued by HHS – is stayed, meaning HHS cannot enforce that guidance. They can't put this weird reading on Mtala and force healthcare systems to be complicit with elective abortion. And they can't exonerate abortionists who bring their patients in through the ER and want to do an elective abortion because there's no life-threatening medical reason to do this abortion. You cannot and this and teleguidance cannot exonerate those physicians and in, insulate them from the effects of state law. So that's why we were delighted that that, that was the, the judgment of the Well, uh, congratulations,
0: better. and I'm very okay. happy for everyone involved in medicine, uh, whether it's hospital systems, the nurses that would have to be assisting at these at these procedures, right. doctors that would find themselves made to finish an abortion in progress, even though they hadn't um, even though there's no reason to, the woman is not, not hemorrhaging, she's not sick. She's, she can very well, there's no danger to her life. So how wonderful yeah. that, that, you know, it makes me think though, that the, um, that the way that the, that, that the narrative is being pushed, that this narrative of women having the, all this distress that requires an abortion, right? Like it's not just the health of the mother, but the health of the mother in the sense of great emotional distress. I've heard this being pushed in several different ways, um, uh, maybe I've I've heard an instance of, of a woman being possibly in the process of a miscarriage and wanting the process to be to be hurried up through an abortion. Mm-hmm. And the doctor saying, no, let's wait and see. You may be able to this baby may 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 survive and then presented on the left um, from the left from the pro-abortion side as well. The woman's been made to, you know, to endure these days of agony when a quick abortion procedure would have, um, you know, stop this miscarriage process. What do you think about that? Do you think that the left is being pro-abortion side is being effective in making this the, the women the woman in distress uh, view of things so pop, you know, really really striking a chord in people?
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. I have to do one clarification first. Mm-hmm. Tell me, yes, on. and and that is that the the our suit against the administration is not is not final. Right, the right. The decision was of the judge was Sorry, to simply just. Yes. Dis- to, to stay enforcement mm-hmm. so, so we're not anywhere near final but at least we have the, the uh, enforcement of that statute or, or that guidance stayed um, yeah this whole idea that somehow miscarriage and abortion are the same thing is, is one of those remarkably insane pieces of misspeak that I, I, I think I've ever heard mm-hmm. it's very clear the difference between a miscarriage and an abortion in a miscarriage the babies died In an abortion, the purpose of the abortion is to take a healthy pregnancy or a a baby who's alive and to kill that baby. So if a woman has miscarried or she's in the process of miscarrying, then the baby's already died. And so whether she decides to continue for a little while and see if her body can pass the baby and and the placenta naturally, or whether she says, I want a DNC now. That's not a really a morally fraught question. It's really up to her. And any ob when there's a baby who's already died, will separate the mom and the baby that's already died. That's, there, there isn't even any moral issue. The, the difficulty we have with ob is that there are terms mm-hmm. that mean many different things. Okay? Yes, So the term miscarriage can be applied as a threatened miscarriage, which means the mom's having some bleeding or spotting, but the baby's still alive. Mm -hmm. That's not a miscarriage. That is when the mom's having bleeding or spotting and the baby's still alive. So as long as the baby's alive, we would not go in and end the life of that baby. Not unless there were some life-threatening situation where continuing the pregnancy would really cause the mom to be at risk of dying for example, ectopic pregnancy. Now, most of the time in ectopic pregnancy, like about 93% of the time, there is no fetus with a heartbeat. What happened is that of all the thousands of things that have to happen when the chromosomes of the sperm and egg come together, one or two didn't. And so the baby only developed to a certain point, but then died. But the placenta can continue to grow. And because the placenta can continue to grow, that ectopic pregnancy can rupture. So In those cases where there's no fetus with the heartbeat, no embryo with the heartbeat, there's no moral problem. You take care of the the ectopic either by surgery, taking out the tube, or by opening the tube and taking out the pregnancy tissue, or by giving methotrexate. All of those work in the cases where there's no living baby. Mm -hmm. In the cases where there is a living baby, the mom is actually even more at risk because when the baby's alive, that means that the pregnancy tissue, the the placenta is going to grow at not quite a normal rate, but more like a normal rate, which means that rupture is much, much more likely. So in those cases, we do separate the mom and the baby. That is done understanding that we will lose the baby, but if we could save the baby, we would. Mm -hmm. We we don't go in with the intent, I'm going to go in and kill the baby. What we go in with is the intent that, I know that if this tubal pregnancy ruptures, that the mom has a very high likelihood of dying, bleeding to death. And so in order to save at least one, I will separate the mom and the baby. As technology advances, we're hopeful that maybe someday... We can save two in that situation. But we separate under the principle of double effect. We don't separate with the intent to kill the baby. So pregnancy management is way different than an elective abortion. And miscarriage management is way different than elective abortion. And and that's one of the myths that the other side is trying to spin, that that it's the same thing. The reason they're trying to spin that is to avoid talking about what is the real issue. So in this era, after Dobbs, what we have is a situation where the states can say, we don't want elective abortion in our state. We don't want people going in and intentionally killing a preborn human being for no reason. And that's a very reasonable thing to say because intentionally killing a preborn human being for no medical reason is not medical care. It's, it has nothing to do with medical care. It's killing a human being for social reasons.
0: You, Dr. Harrison, as the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, have been able to promote this idea of of medicine as a life, as an entirely life-saving and life-preserving profession, as as is so wonderful, as it should be, as it has historically been. And, And thank you for your work. Where can our uh, listeners learn more about Pro-Life, your your organization of Pro-Life OBGYNs?
2: Go to our website, which is aaplog.org, or just Google Pro-Life OBGYNs, and we have wonderful resources.
0: Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
3: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the Risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, as he teaches us about the yearning he wants us to have for him and his kingdom, in this world, and forever. He does so by using an image about wedding customs that might seem initially confusing and strange to us. The details, however, would have been very well understood by his contemporaries. There were two main stages in an ancient Jewish marriage. The first would be the exchange of vows. When this took place, the bride and groom were contractually married, but they would continue to live apart for a year or more while the husband worked to pay for and prepare a new home to welcome his wife and begin their common life, as well as to pay for the wedding reception they would eventually host there. The second stage took place after all of that work was done. The husband would come to the bride's house to pick her up and take her to their new abode for the wedding reception. He would send out some of his groomsmen with word that the bridegroom was coming, meaning that he could arrive within hours, days, or up to a week. He'd be accompanied by all the guests from his side and meet his wife with all the guests from her side. Both groups would then process as one to their new home. And when they arrived, instead of a one day celebration and then the couples leaving for someplace else for a honeymoon, they would celebrate their nuptials for eight days with all their family and friends. In order to cut down in the amount of gas one would need to feed for eight days, the bridegroom sometimes would come in the middle of the night. By custom, those who weren't ready when he came lost their spots. As soon as the bridegroom took his bride into their house, the doors would be shut to prevent latecomers from crashing the party. This wedding tradition, which was universal at Jesus' time, is still found today in certain parts of the Holy Land and Middle East. The drama of the parable is that the bridegroom indeed comes at night, But only five of the ten bridesmaids are ready with oil in their lamps to await him. The other five were unprepared, sought to borrow some, had to go buy some, missed the bridegroom's arrival, and then were therefore shut out of the reception. Jesus used this image as a background to communicate to us how we should be living for and in his kingdom, preparing for his return as bridegroom at the end of our life or at the end of the world, whichever comes first. Jesus contrasts five wise bridesmaids versus five foolish ones, wanting us to imitate the lessons we see in the five wise ones. November is the month in which the whole church reflects on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And Jesus, by this image, tries to help us prepare well for the first two so that we may experience the third and avoid the fourth. But for this to happen, we need to learn three crucial lessons from the wise virgins. The first lesson is vigilance for the bridegroom's coming. The heralds have already gone out to announce that Jesus is coming. We need to be ready to go with him whenever he arrives. Death for a Christian is not meant to be a scary thing. It's the time when Jesus the bridegroom comes for us to take us to his home, where we will celebrate with him forever. We're called to await him with eager longing, great expectation. He wants the lamps of our hearts burning for him, replete with the oil of love. The best way for us to stay alert for the return of the Bridegroom is for us to be ready with hearts burning with love for the presence of the Bridegroom now. The more we long for Jesus in the Eucharist, the more we attentively listen to his word in Sacred Scripture, the more we seek to recognize him in the persons and events of each day and love and embrace them as we would love and embrace Christ, the readier we will be to embrace Christ when he appears without disguise. The second thing Jesus teaches us in this image of the Ten Bridesmaids Is that there are certain things we can't borrow just as the unwise virgins didn't have enough oil for their own lamps and oil stands for expectant love of the lord so we can't borrow anybody else's faith hope or love we need to have our own otherwise we'll be caught unready and left outside one of my favorite spiritual authors erasmo lavamerikakis now trappist father simeon of spencer abbey describes in his classic commentary on St. Matthew's Gospel, Fire of Mercy, that the foolish virgins are foolish not only because they neglected to bring their own supply of oil with them to the momentous encounter with the bridegroom, but also because they possess a naive and perhaps even subtly manipulative and self-indulgent view of the society to which they belong. They're spiritual freeloaders. They simply assume that they do not have to work for their own oil That in a pinch, anyone's oil will burn just as nicely in their own lamps. That they shouldn't strain themselves too much because there are many others who will gladly do their work for them. And that they therefore can relax in an attitude of entitlement and allow others to fill in the gap for them. What a poignant analysis of many in our age. In other words, there are many who fail in their own responsibility to prioritize their own personal relationship with Jesus the bridegroom. We can't borrow another's relationship with the Lord, another's faith or hope, another's soul or spiritual life. None of us can say for someone else, Jesus, I love you too, or forgive me or help me. For those who are faithful to Christ, there's a lesson here too, that there are certain things we can't lend or give even to those we love most. They must assume responsibility for developing an eager, expectant, vigilant, faithful love for God in their own. Those who think that they can borrow others' relationships with the Lord when the Lord comes are indeed foolish, just as Jesus says about the unwise bridesmaids. The third lesson is that there is a time that can be too late. Certain things can't be obtained at the last minute. In the parable, the unwise virgins were caught off guard. They couldn't borrow oil, so they had to try to obtain some on their own, and they missed the bridegroom and were locked out. They banged on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But then he replied with words that I think are the saddest and scariest in all of sacred scripture. Truly, I tell you, I do not know you. For the Lord to know us, for us to be on time for the wedding banquet, we have to spend our time here getting to know him intimately as a friend, as a savior, as our God. Many of us often put off the most important thing in life, which is to make God first in life. We allow the devil to deceive us by saying there's always time to insinuate that we can live like the good thief, do our own thing, presuming that the Lord will give us a chance at the end to say one prayer so that everything will work out. Jesus tells us that those who would imitate the foolish bridesmaids in this way, however, that there would be a time when there will be no time left, when the door will be shut. Now is the time for us to get to know the Lord in prayer, in the sacramental life, in the moral life of love, so that he will never say, I don't know you. Now is the time for us to prepare for his return. All of us have known people who have died unexpectedly, even young people. The moral Jesus gives at the end of today's parable is crystal clear. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. To be awake means never to be asleep to God, but always to be alert, full of love, waiting for his return. So three lessons. In eager, expectant, waiting for the Lord's coming in all his ways a recognition that we can't borrow what we're going to need to meet the Lord when He comes, and a loving admonition from the Lord not to procrastinate on our preparations until it's too late. Every Mass is meant to help us with each of these three. If we're truly ready to meet the Lord each week at Mass, with our souls clean from serious sins, with our hearts hungering for Him, with the Lord Himself, the light of the world burning inside of us, fueled by the oil of our love, then we'll never be caught off guard, whether He comes today, tomorrow, or decades from now. Each Catholic Church proclaims every day, the Bridegroom is here. Let us go out to meet Christ the Lord. And the wise are those who do. God bless you.